Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. For many trade skeptics, the pandemic seems to have reaffirmed why they're right to be skeptical of globalization. They criticize sprawling supply chains and dependence on other nations for critical health equipment or medicines. So they conclude that this reliance has been foolish because in a pinch, it's every nation for itself. And certainly concerns about trade to China have escalated even further because of the pandemic. So today I'm speaking with Douglas Irwin, and we'll be discussing how COVID-19 is affecting the future of international trade. Doug is the John French Professor of Economics at Dartmouth College. He's the author of Clashing Over Commerce, A History of U.S. Trade Policy. And he's also the author of Free Trade Under Fire, the fifth edition of which was released this past spring. Doug, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here. So are protectionists wrong when they say that we've been too dependent on trade for medical supplies and that the pandemic shows the importance of bringing some of that production back home? Uh, I think so, because first of all, um... You know, when you think about our dependence on, uh, you know, masks and other things like that, when times are normal, it's not a problem at all. It's efficient. We uh, we get things uh, at very low cost. Our problem, though, is that uh, we didn't really plan for an event like this, as we should have. And if we had anticipated that there would be such events, what you want to do is not have domestic production of masks necessarily, but you want to have a domestic stockpile. And uh, so we find ourselves in this uh, with massive shortages um, that, uh, you know, we had a strategic uh, petroleum reserve at one point. Um, there, we should have had a strategic reserve for uh, medical equipment and medical uh, uh, things that we would need in, in such a uh, time as a pa- pandemic. But, you know, we don't want to have idle capacity just waiting for a com- pandemic. We, we want to have this stuff uh, already in hand. Um, and remember, too, that uh, countries want to export this stuff. This is a great opportunity uh, for countries to ramp up their production and, and sell to other countries. So the problem has not been so much uh, other countries denying us uh, their production. It's every country around the world trying to ramp up as fast as they can. And if we throw up trade barriers, that just will actually reduce investment because you're, it'll be limiting the size of the market for um, your exports of ventilators or personal protective equipment or what have you. And it will really uh, muck up uh, uh, the whole world system. But is there, but you certainly you can see that that point. So you, you mentioned the protective gear and then there's the medicines. Do we, does a nation really want to be dependent for some of these, you know, for uh, you know, health, national security reasons on any other country for some key, key items? Because again, as we've seen, boy, uh, if it comes down to it, you know, countries are going to, they may, they may trade it, but they're going to make sure they, they're well stockpiled first before they begin trading it to somebody else. Well, we get a lot of our pharmaceuticals actually from the European Union and Canada and other countries that are uh, friendly and um, allies. Uh, I think there would be a question about dependence on China. And uh, that would be an empirical issue depending on which particular uh, drug or pharmaceutical product you're thinking of. Um, and I know the Congressional Research Service and others have looked into this sort of product by product. Uh, but I think to the extent that we're getting a lot of, uh, there's a lot of two-way trade um, with uh, our allies, that shouldn't be a problem if they're in future pandemics. But certainly, it's certainly worth uh, revisiting these things and uh, looking them over. 
But the question is what the policy response should be. I'm not, I don't think tariffs would be the right answer. Uh, certainly incentives for domestic producers to uh, have some onshore capacity might be worthwhile. But the question is what form do those incentives take? And uh, is it going to be, uh, um, you know, will other countries uh, respond in, in kind and we sort of get this uh, other, every country uh, for themselves. Uh, so I think if we, there's always a danger of overreaction that you don't want to lose the benefits of trade, but you also have to be uh, cautious too and, and think about, um, uh, you know, w whether we are over depend overly dependent on countries that may not be friendly to us. One question I liked asking for a while of, uh, of economists was whether the, uh, the great financial, the global financial crisis and great recession, if it caused them to rethink you know, any of their priors or, 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 or maybe tilted them in a different direction. Has a pandemic caused you to change, and I'll let you define what your priors were, on, on trade policy in any way, or inspired different kind of thinking or new thinking? Um, probably yes and no, I guess. Um, one thing is that I think, you know, we have a, a, a very different administration, as you know, in power at the moment, the Trump administration, which has done a lot over the past three years to sort of uh, alienate a lot of our allies. And I think what that does is that has poisoned the international environment uh, where we could have had more cooperation in terms of uh, personal protective gear um, and uh, uh, medical equipment, working with allies in Europe, Canada, Mexico, and elsewhere. And he, I guess it's an illustration of the fact that when you poison trade relationships or uh, foreign policy relationships on, in one dimension, it sp has spillover benefits or costs in other areas. And so I think that um, sort of in this environment, it's been very difficult to uh, get international cooperation on uh, uh, keep a free flow of, of trade uh, in these products. So I guess um, I guess the, the lesson is is that um, you know we it, we can bully other countries um, when we have uh, a, sort of a, a discrete objective that we want to achieve. You know, the Reagan administration was not just sort of these laissez-faire ideological free traders, they were very tough on Japan in certain cases, and even on the European Union in terms of agricultural subsidies. So it's not as though that we don't want to uh, uh, press other countries to address their unfair trade practices. But um, when there's unnecessary bullying, um, it can come back to haunt you, it can come back to bite you. And I think one of the lessons of the pandemic is, is that uh, we've had some of these problems with uh, regard to trade precisely because the, trade, the Trump administration has not been viewed as a, as a uh, you know, fair player, as a, um, uh, an ally that you can work with. Now, I guess on the, the other side, um, I think, once again, the issue with China comes up about overdependence and whether, you know, uh, if we don't have a good relationship with them uh, for very, some very good reasons, uh, whether we would be sort of first in their priority list to uh, get exports of their masks or what have you. So once again, I think it, it just uh, draws the relationship between trade policy and foreign policy. And it's very difficult to have good trade relations with countries that you don't get along with in terms of foreign policy and vice versa. Uh, one question I've gotten from people is what happens uh, one country develops a, a, a vaccine? How, how does that get, the, I mean, how does that get distributed? Distributed in one country, make sure that they have all the doses they need before they allow a company to sell it to, to other nations? Does, do we know how that will proceed? We have no idea how that will proceed. And of course, it depends on which country uh, comes up with that. And that's uh, one reason why um, 
you know, there may be uh, what economists call an externality, a public good aspect to uh, pharmaceutical production. I have a colleague at Dartmouth, Chris Snyder, who's worked on various schemes to A, incentivize um, the rapid development of pharmaceuticals, and B, to uh, provide public uh, financing for the dissemination of those things. Now, of course, there's an international dimension. If uh, Germany or uh, China comes up with the vaccine first, how do we get access to it? Um, and once again, here's the the point about international trade cooperation and international cooperation more generally. If we have uh, been belligerent uh, with these countries in the past, it's going to compound the difficulties of, of getting access to that vaccine. Um, I mentioned your priors. Uh, I've, I've certainly seen polls showing that leading up to the pandemic, uh, that trade had actually become more uh, more popular with Americans. Do you think that's going to change at all because of this pandemic and people will be sort of more inward seeking, more sort of, you know, raise the drawbridge? Uh, people are going to become more uh, protectionist then maybe we'll see that more reflected in politics. We've certainly seen leaders around the world um, talk about how uh, this has increased the risks of trade, the vulnerability of trade, the over-dependence on foreign suppliers. Um, it's not just a U.S. phenomenon, European leaders, Asian leaders, African and Latin American leaders as well. So I do worry a bit that there might be this overreaction in thinking that what's happening with the pandemic applies more generally, and therefore countries have to have more domestic sourcing of all sorts of things. Um, I do think that private firms may be rethinking uh, how extended they will be and how dependent they will be on certain suppliers overseas. Um, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers has said that we're, we'd be moving from a just-in-time system of inventories to a just-in-case system. Where, uh, firms are going to be more diversified. But that's, that's the private sector responding to these things. The public sector, what the government does, whether they should be forcing this, well, I think the private sector might have a better uh, judge of things in terms of um, non-essential uh, uh, items, um, you know, electronics and what have you, where they do their sourcing, and, and they can assess what the risks are. So I do worry a little bit about a, the public sector and governments uh, turning inward. Um, whenever there's uh, perceived more risk or more fear in the international environment, there's a natural tendency to move inward. Um, and uh, we luckily didn't see that happen too much after the financial crisis in 2009. Um, we may not see it this time, but there have been indications that we might. So I think we'll have to see about that, um, but it would be something uh, I would be concerned about. Well, the people who are extremely concerned about the interdependence between the U.S. and China seem to think that the pandemic proves their point. I have been skeptical that we would be persistent in this trade cold war, but maybe the pandemic has made it a lot more likely that politicians will try to disentangle these economies. Yeah. Once again, there's two approaches. One is what is the what are governments going to be doing, and then what are private firms going to be doing? I think private firms are increasingly harassed and worried about the environment in China. So I think naturally there would be a, a diversion of supply chains away from China because of Chinese economic behavior. Um, but then the question is: Is that going to be facilitated or uh, um, uh, by governments? And I think that you know, regardless of what happens in the upcoming election, um, the relationship, both economic, political with China is uh, proving to be very difficult and a fraught one. And so I think that uh, will also encourage the private sector to sort of think twice about doubling down on investments in China and, and think about elsewhere in Southeast Asia. So I do think that sort of this, you know, the friction between the US and China is not, um, not going away anytime soon. It has a fairly deep uh, roots that go back. Um, and it's not just a Trump administration. I think the Biden administration also will be very skeptical about um, uh, trade with China. So well, I think 
the new normal in a sense. Biden has now released part of his economic plan, which includes a big Buy America program. So now Democratic economic policies seem to be getting a more protectionist tilt. Why? Is this just because politicians think Buy American programs are popular with voters? Yeah. I mean, once again, if we go back to, you know, before the 2016 election, uh, it was the Democratic Party that would be more in favor of uh, sourcing domestically, union, uni, using unionized uh, uh, domestic production have, uh, through these Buy America programs and what have you. And Republicans tended to oppose that. Uh, but under President Trump, uh, as you just suggested, the Republican Party, or at least the leadership, has moved in a more uh, nationalist direction. So I think two things are going on with Biden. First of all, they may be trying to outdo uh, Trump in terms of the uh, economic nationalism and the Buy America policies, which the Trump administration has sort of talked about, but really hasn't implemented as much. And then uh, you have sort of the traditional Democratic constituencies that have been pushing for this anyway. So it's a, a sense of... of are, those, are, those, are, are those good ideas, Buy American programs? Or what, what, is, what have you found or what is the research uh, uh, found on their uh, effectiveness? Well, first of all, they raise the price of things because uh, obviously the reason you would be importing is because you're getting a, a equally high, if not better uh, quality product at a lower price. Um, so you do two things. First of all, you raise the cost of doing investments and, and purchasing things. And second of all, you create opportunities for rent seekers, um, for uh, um, uh, domestic firms that want to get these uh, uh, special uh, privileges uh, that where or preferences where... Uh, government procurement or even private firms have to buy America. So one concrete example, or actually it's not a concrete example, it's a steel example. When they're building the Bay, rebuilding the Bay Bridge in uh, San Francisco, there are Buy America rules that raise the cost of that by uh, I think tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars. It was a multi-billion dollar project. Um, you could have imported the steel at much lower price, but uh, the rules were you had to use domestic steel. Um, and if the domestic price is five, 10, $20 a ton more, um, that adds a lot to big construction projects. So it puts state and local governments to the extent they're doing these construction projects um, in a big hole and when they're already facing financial distress. It seems that at the heart of these ideas, people on both sides just think we're going to reverse globalization and bring manufacturing back to the United States. But even if we can bring back manufacturing, I'm skeptical this would mean a lot more jobs. Oh, that's right. I mean, we might bring some manufacturing production back, but we're not going to bring many manufacturing jobs back. Uh, and that's because uh, manufacturing today is so capital intensive, so technology intensive, it's fairly easy to ramp up production without adding a lot of jobs. Um, you know, one of my favorite statistics is that uh, in 1980, or at least in the 1980s, it took about 10 worker hours to produce a ton of steel. Now it takes about one worker hour to produce a ton of steel. So we've lost jobs, not because of globalization, not because of imports, but because of uh, competitive pressures that have forced firms to become more efficient. Um, and they have uh, are able to increase their output without uh, adding on a lot of jobs. What do you make of the USMCA, the US-Mexican-Canada trade agreement, which just went into effect? Did it really change a lot from NAFTA 1.0? Not fundamentally. It basically kept NAFTA intact. It added on some new provisions that actually were in the Trans-Pacific Partnership that sort of uh, would update things. NAFTA was a pre-internet, pre-e-commerce agreement. So there's some uh, provisions uh, regarding data flows and uh, e-commerce and things of that sort. So that updates were sort of taken from the TPP. Big step backwards is in the auto sector where uh, they tightened rules of origin and have a minimum wage uh, requirement in terms of 
certain parts of domestic production. Um, but overall, it's it's better than no NAFTA. Um, I think it could have been a, a cleaner update of NAFTA. But um, for all the uh, heavy criticisms that uh, President Trump levied against NAFTA's worst trade agreement ever, um, USMCA basically keeps it intact uh, with this uh, slight update. Then there's this phase one trade deal with China. A lot of people think this would be the beginning of a disentangling of our economies. But to me, it looks like it does just the opposite. It's increasing economic interdependence between the countries because China is buying more and it's making itself a better environment for U.S. investment. Yeah, there really is a confusion about what exactly it is we want from China. Um, and there are different camps and different uh, uh, entities arguing for different things. But you're right, it's sort of a very odd agreement in the sense uh, the phase one is just dealing with uh, U.S. sales of agricultural products largely to China. And uh, China agreed to make some commitments on that, which they will not be able to keep because of the pandemic and because um, the amounts were maybe not realistic in terms of what the markets could handle. But it was trying to provide some compensation for uh, you know, the retaliation that had taken place uh, prior um, to that as a result of uh, what the Trump administration had done. But the agreement does not do anything on structural issues. So if your your concern was Ch China doesn't buy enough from us, it maybe is a step in the direction, even though it probably won't take us very far. If your worry was that China is just fundamentally an unfair trader and they have a different economic system, well, it does nothing to address that. That was the phase two uh, uh, project that they have yet to really uh, negotiate and undertake. So it doesn't change whether we think China is an unfair trader. It just is a purchasing agreement, really, um, that the U.S. government negotiated on the behalf of farmers who they've also had to bail out um, to the tunes of tens of uh, billions of dollars because of the retaliation in Europe and China and elsewhere. Do you think, I mean, again, yeah, I'm sure you hear a lot about it, you know, intellectual property theft, technology theft. Do we have a good sense of how much of that has gone on, continues to gone on? to go on and whether it's actually been detrimental to the United States. I think it's been detrimental to some firms um, at, who uh, you know, make big investments in technology and find it leaks out very quickly. I guess there would be a difference one should make between U.S. firms that invest in China knowing full well that the technology is going to leak out um, versus those who are cyber hacked uh, operating here in the U.S. or elsewhere and find their computer systems and their technology really just literally stolen. Um, in some sense, you know, a company like Boeing, they have to do some production of aircraft in China because um, they want to sell uh, to Chinese airliners and that um, the Chinese government implicitly sort of twists their arm to uh, uh, set up plants and transfer technology. Um, you know, I think we could have a debate about whether that's a good thing or not. Um, but certainly the cyber theft, uh, I don't think that would be uh, anyone would really justify that. And uh, that happens both at the state level and the private level in China, unfortunately. Do you think we made a mistake 20 years ago by normalizing trade with China? Could we have done anything differently to make a better situation today? Well, I think you have to go back in time and think of where we were in the 1990s when we were considering normalizing trade relations with China. And here I'd refer you to an excellent uh, paper just published by Scott Lincecum at the uh, Cato Institute on precisely this issue. And at the time, remember, China was moving in a liberalizing direction. Their accession to the WTO pushed them in that direction and uh, uh, made them open up their market, um, reduce their tariffs. Um, it didn't quite discipline the state-owned enterprises as much as we might in, in hindsight have, have requested. But really the big change happened not as a result of normalization, um, which did make China richer, reduced poverty, made them better consumers for our products. 
Um, but the change happened with the um, when uh, President Xi Jinping uh, took power around 2013, and he really moved in a different status direction. So I think the origin of our problem with China is not uh, sort of 1999-2000 when uh, they joined the WTO, but it's really uh, President Xi Jinping. And uh, you know now China's uh, a bigger power, um, and uh, and you know we have these uh, issues. Um, because they've really doubled down on their state-led uh, development model in some sense. And so that was something that really wasn't anticipated uh, more than 20 years ago. Um, and I, you know, I think it's sort of unhelpful to be a Monday morning quarterback and saying we should have known what was going to happen 20 years later um, when China was moving in exactly the right direction that we wanted them to uh, when we uh, allowed them to join the WTO. To finish up, trade growth was already slowing before the pandemic, and there was also talk on both sides about protecting domestic industry. So after we bounce back from the pandemic, does globalization continue to slow down, or do we start to re-embrace free trade and trade a lot more at some point? Well, I'm usually an optimist, but on this point, I'm not so much an optimist as a pessimist. You know, there's been a confluence of things that have gone on in the world economy over the past decade, which I think is pushing us towards less globalization. Um, the high watermark really was around 2008, just before the financial crisis. And since then, what we've seen is um, less liberalization around the world. We've seen uh, sort of a retreat or at least um, uh, no growth in uh, global value chains and uh, outsourcing and things of that sort. And then when you have the pandemic on top of this, it sort of reinforces this momentum towards rethinking uh, the globalization that we've had in the past. And we have to think, you know, Globalization of the past has really helped out uh, the entire world economy. It's uh, created huge middle classes around the world, reduced world poverty. But um, uh, you know, the forces uh, moving us towards a more integrated economy, I think, are, are really weak at the moment. Now, the danger now to the extent that these are being driven by sort of market phenomena, and our private firms just reacting to the environment they see. Um, I don't see a problem with that. But if states were to give new um, uh, momentum to the deglobalization trend, um, that I think would be problematic because I think one of the lessons of history is once you go down that road, it's very difficult for governments to turn uh, turn around and, and try to uh, uh, stimulate the world economy by reducing trade barriers. You get vested interests domestically in all sorts of countries that have a stake in those sorts of policies, and it's very difficult to undo that damage. So I guess the risk is if the U.S. says, hey, we want to subsidize domestic manufacturing and move away from the world economy, well, other countries will follow that lead, say the rules that we've negotiated in the past aren't so important, and we'll do the, exactly the same thing. And so um, uh, then that sort of compounds the problem, and it uh, creates this vacuum where if there's not U.S. leadership, it's hard to turn things around and move in a more, um, more open market uh, direction. My guest today has been Douglas Irwin. Doug, thanks for coming on the podcast. You're most welcome.